Our Father, we are, again, thankful for Elias and his family, for David and his family, and, and, these, uh, and these men who sacrifice uh, their safety and uh, give of themselves to do good in this world as an expression of your common grace uh, in terms of government that protects and lessens the effects of sin on society at large. And so we do ask that you would, as Sue said, give them courage, bless them, make them lights uh, where they are for the gospel of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, again for the opportunity to look at your word. It is your living word. The meaning is frozen in time, and in that sense, it is an ancient book, and yet its truth endures through all of the ages, even to all eternity. And it is your truth that does its work in us. It is your truth that leads us to the knowledge of you in Christ. And so we ask that even now, uh, this morning, in the next few moments we have, that you would perform that ministry in us. To the glory of Christ, to the glory of the Father. In the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, we did not finish last week uh, what we uh, begun, had begun, or began, whatever that is. Fill in the right word. Uh, our look at the Spirit of Christ in the believer. The Spirit of Christ uh, in the believer. Uh, this is a glorious truth that we share uh, and we have within ourselves of the Holy Spirit, the eternal God, the third member of the Trinity, the same spirit that was in Christ, empowering Christ, enabling Christ to fulfill the ministry that in his humanity that the Father had given him to do and that he willingly and voluntarily and gladly accepted to do, to be a substitute for us, for our sin, and to be our returning king. And so the glory is, is that that same Christ who was the perfect man, the perfect God-man, fully God or truly God, fully man or truly man, uh, was exactly what we are to be as those who are made in the image of God. He was perfect humanity. He was uniquely God. He was uniquely man together in the one person of Christ. And yet, the one that men saw and handled and heard and touched, as First John says, was fully man. And that is an amazing reality, just in this sense alone, that God created humanity in such a way as those who bear his image that he could inhabit humanity and fully display himself. This is massive things about the dignity of humanity and what it means to be human. The potential of humanity as in terms of our ability to know God and to reflect God and which we will do through all eternity in heaven. But the thing I want to focus on uh, this morning and finish up is that the same spirit, the same reality, the same life that was demonstrated in Christ in terms of his perfect humanity is the life that indwells us as the church, individually as believers and corporately as the church. There are many who claim to be born again. You've probably seen some of these statistics. And yet when you dig a little deeper about what it means to be born again, you see all kinds of beliefs and activities in life that don't conform to the truth of Scripture, that don't conform to holiness and righteousness. 
And yet those who are truly born again will manifest this by what is evident in their lives. And that is true not merely because we have received the gift and the miracle of life, that's at the foundation, but it is when we are saved, there are a variety of things that happen. We're united to Christ, we're reconciled, we're forgiven, we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Holy Spirit. There are a variety of things that God does instantaneously within the believer, but the greatest in terms of the new covenant and the promise in terms of that which uh, is ours after the appearing of Christ, is that we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, not merely with us, not merely as an aid and a help, but actually indwelling in us, communicating to us the life of God through Christ. Now, we noted last week that we were looking at this in two uh, major sections. One, namely the, that Jesus was the perfect spirit-empowered man. He was the perfect spirit-empowered God-man. He was the eternal son who indwelled among us. He was the word by whom all things came into existence, through whom all things were made, for whom all things were made. That is, by the way, a Christian worldview. Why do all things exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? Because of Christ. Because God had eternally determined to create a world, to create a world inhabited by those who would bear his image, and even though fallen, a world by those who would bear his image that ultimately he would redeem through his son to forever enjoy the fellowship that he has with the Son and that the Son has with the Father and so that we might be with him forever. That's why all things exist because God chose to bring us into union with his Son and to glorify himself in all of eternity in that way. And so Jesus then came as flesh and blood. Why? Because as Hebrews 2 said, the children share in flesh and blood and therefore the mediator, their substitute, had to share in flesh and blood. He had to be made like those he came to redeem. As a matter of fact, an old church father had this uh, statement. It's kind of a pithy statement that puts that together. He says, whatever was not assumed is not redeemed. Whatever is not, was not assumed was not redeemed. In other words, Christ had to be fully man to redeem man. If he were any part of him were less than a man, then he could not redeem man. He had to be fully God and fully man. And so we considered that last week. Secondly, though, as fully God and fully man, as one who had the spirit without measure, as only he, the Son of God, could have in his humanity... He was what we should be, as I already mentioned. He was what we should be. He was everything that we should be for us and on our behalf. And in this glory of him coming as the God-man, standing as our substitute, uh, he brought about the ability to bring us into a relationship with God that was previously unknown because of his possession of the Holy Spirit. And so when Christ was crucified as an atonement for our sin, when he was buried and raised, and then afterwards he appeared to the disciples for 40 days, and then he ascended up to the Father where he is right now at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, there was something glorious that happened upon his ascension. And Peter mentioned this in the very first sermon of the New Covenant. He said this, and this is after on the day of Pentecost, after the Spirit had come, after Christ had already told them to wait until they received the promise from our power from on high, the promise from the Father, 
Peter says this in verse 33, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he has both poured forth this which you both see and hear. So Christ, as the God-man with the fullness of the Spirit, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he received from the Father the promise of the Spirit. Now, he did not receive from the the Father the Spirit as the eternal Son of God, but as the exalted man, Christ Jesus, the one who had accomplished all that the Father had given him to do. So in his humanity, as the exalted Messiah, he received the Holy Spirit, and just as he promised, he said, not many days now, he said, just as John baptized in water, I will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And so as the God-man, having accomplished the work that the Father had given him to do, he received the promise of his completed work, and he poured forth the Holy Spirit, and the church was born. We are the fruit of the work of Christ. We are the fruit of this ministry of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. To be baptized in the Holy Spirit, just to put simply, is to be immersed in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is to be brought into union with Christ to participate in his life and through that participation to know the the power, the spiritual power of the spirit and the presence of God within us. And that's the glory of the new covenant, something we'll look at just a bit later. So we have the spirit of Christ. We have the spirit of Christ. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean then to be a part of the new covenant and to have the spirit of Christ, to have within us the same spirit that Christ had within himself? Well, there's a lot that could be said, but the time that we have and to simplify it, there are three uh, three primary categories or three ways or three areas that this life of Christ in us is demonstrated. The first, which I introduced last week, is this. It means that the Holy Spirit is within us as God's people to empower us to be witnesses for Christ. To empower us to be witnesses for Christ. To be his witnesses in the world. Now this I'll mention briefly because it is a review. But in verse 26... When Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he says this in John 15, verse 26. When the helper comes, the helper he's already introduced that he will send from the Father. This is the spirit of truth he's already identified him as. When the helper comes, this is the paraclete, sometimes the comforter, the counselor, the paraclete, the advocate. There's a variety of translations. But here, in the New American Standard anyway, is the helper. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will do what? He will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. In other words, the ministry of the testifying, the witnessing ministry of the Holy Spirit is going to be worked out through the ministry of the disciples who will be the bearers of new covenant truth. Ultimately, that results in the scriptures, in the Bible, the written word. They were the key, the, the key aspects of canonicity. In other words, which books belonged in the New Testament. One key aspect of that is that it has association with apostolic authority. It was either written by an apostle, an associate with an apostle. It can somehow be attached to apostolic authority. They were the ones by God to be 
the, the witnesses of new covenant revelation. And here is a part of that promise. And so the ministry of the Spirit, the Spirit of truth, is that he would, in his, here specifically disciples, ultimately through the church, bear witness to Christ. Bear witness to Christ. He'll say later in verse uh, 13 of chapter 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own initiative. Whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. And to take of mine and disclose it to you is nothing less than to take of the fullness of God, the Father. All things that he says in verse 13 that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. And such is the glory of this promise. But this is related here, and what I want to emphasize is this, that it is a promise that the Spirit will empower them to bear witness to Christ. We noted this last week in verse 20 of chapter John, uh, John in one of his resurrection appearances, he, he said this to his disciples. He said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, in verse 21, I also send you. Send you what? To be witnesses of the truth. To be witnesses of the truth. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Which is simply to say, in a nutshell, that as the purveyors of truth, as the communicators and witness of apostolic doctrine, whatever conforms to your witness of Christ is affirmed in heaven, and whatever contradicts your witness to me is rejected by heaven. But it is to bear witness. It is to bear witness is this ministry of the Holy Spirit. And of course, we saw that witness right at the beginning of the preaching of the gospel and the coming of the Holy Spirit. We already mentioned it, but Peter stood up and he preached a sermon and 3,000 souls were saved. But then how does, he, how does he achieve or accomplish this witness? Well, one is through the ministry of the word, through the preaching of the gospel, through the scriptures that would be written down. But it, it is the scriptures attended then also with the power of the Holy Spirit. It is through the apostolic witness that the Spirit will bring about the convicting ministry of that word to the world. And so in verse 16 of John 16, he says this, and this is where we ended off last week. But now I'm, coming, I'm going to him, this is Jesus speaking, who sent me, that is the Father, and none of you ask me where are you going, but because I have said these things... To you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. That is the ministry of of the Holy Spirit working through the witness of the disciples and then of the church after them. He will convict the world. 
The idea of convict has this general idea, show to be guilty or in the wrong, or even to have a personal apprehension of something. And both of those ideas are really included in the word here. It is convict as in a legal court. The evidence is brought against the defendant, and by that evidence, they are convicted. There is conviction as well in the sense of that that truth is apprehended as being personally applicable to the individual in which they feel the weight of that truth within themselves and the need to respond. Both of those ideas are inherent in that word. What is it then that he will convict the world of? First, he says he will convict the world of their unbelief. He will convict them of sin because they do not believe in me, which is simply to say, as Christ is proclaimed in the world through this witness of the apostles and of the church, as his glory is displayed in the proclamation of the gospel, the world then is found guilty for unbelief, for not believing in him, for not believing in the witness that God has borne to himself and to his son through the preaching of the gospel. John 8, verse 24, he says, I said to you, speaking to the the Jews there, I said to you that you will die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. You'll die in your sin. In 1 John, he says this, I believe we mentioned this part last week. In 1 John chapter 5, he said... If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has a testimony in himself. The one who does not believe has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And so it is the ministry of the spirit through the church, through the proclamation of the word to bear testimony of him to the world, of Christ to the world, And in doing so, the world in their unbelief, the world is convicted of sin. He also says here that he will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. You concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. What does this mean? In what way will he convict the world concerning righteousness? Uh, Some take this to mean, emphasizing the idea of you, the change to the you, I go to the Father and you will no longer see me, to mean this, that as the life of Christ is evident in the church, as the righteousness of Christ is evident in the church, it convicts the world of their unrighteousness. And this would be, Similar to what Jesus said in John chapter 3, that men hate the light and they don't come to the light because the light exposes their deeds as evil, but those who are born of God come to the light to show that their deeds are wrought in God. They flow out of the presence of God in them, the reality of God's life in them. And to not recognize that life of Christ is then to be convicted of guilt to be convicted of the unrighteousness of the world because the righteousness of Christ by the life of Christ in the church then reveals the insufficiency of the world's righteousness to know God and to be accepted by him. And that is a very possible way to take that and it certainly is true and connects with many things that Jesus says or that John says in his revelation. 
Jesus. It seems better, however, to maintain the focus on Christ in each of this and to think then that he will convict the world of the perfect righteousness of Christ demonstrated in his perfect, in his person and in his word. And in that way, show the unrighteousness of the world. So in this way, Paul said in uh, Romans chapter 3, he says this. I think this is the idea here. We've mentioned this before, that God displayed Christ publicly as a satisfaction in his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, as the testimony about Christ, as the provided sacrifice of God, the one who alone fulfilled all God's righteousness, who was perfect in his obedience, complete in his atonement, and justified in his resurrection, vindicated in his resurrection, shows that he alone is the righteousness that God accepts. And in him alone is the righteousness to be found that can make a person right with God. Remember, holiness isn't in degrees. It's not the one who has the most obedience or the one who obeys the most or the most good works. God has one standard to be in his presence, and that is holiness. Holiness. One sin put Adam and Eve out of the garden and had them excluded from God's presence forever. One sin brought such abandonment by God that it brought in the misery that we have known as fallen human beings throughout the ages, the very corruption that brought about the destruction of the world only a few chapters later. One sin. The one man's sin entered in the world and death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so... There is within humanity the inability to meet the righteous requirement of God. All of religion is man's attempt to somehow deal with the reality of sin and to have some kind of assurance. It can be through a good works. It could be a spiritualist who just says, you know, I'm spiritual, everything's going to be okay. It can be through some form of religion. It can be through Catholicism that says that God enables us through the church and through, the and through regeneration at baptism to complete our justification by working along with the church. And hopefully you don't commit a sin that puts you out of that justification, the, an unpardonable sin. And hopefully you don't commit so many sins that God's justice doesn't have to be satisfied for a longer period of time in purgatory at the end. Or you can have Islam that says you can never meet as perfect as Allah is, and so Allah will decide, and he'll kind of put the works on a scale and decide who gets in and who gets out and who's not let in. And so there's no sense of assurance within Islam, unless you die as a martyr, of course, but not so with God's work in Christ. He has fulfilled every righteous requirement that man needs to be in his present in his son, in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And therefore, as the church proclaims that message, it proclaims the message that Christ has fulfilled all righteousness for us. And that in Christ, the sinner can be made righteous, can be assured of the forgiveness of sin, can be brought into the presence of God. 
me give you just one verse, Acts 17. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Listen, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. In other words, when he comes, he will uphold the perfect righteousness of God and the perfect justice of God. And if man wants to relate to God on their own, then they have to meet that standard or others bear the penalty of unrighteousness. In Christ, Christians don't fear this upholding of the justice of God because it has been upheld by God in Christ on the cross. It has been accepted by him. And so we stand in Christ's righteousness. So the world, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father having completed the work that he has given me to do, having shown by the resurrection that it is accepted by the Father, having fulfilled the promise of the Spirit when he sent him, I convict the world, the Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness. Thirdly, he will convict the world concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world has been cast out. The ruler of this world has been cast out. In other words, the works of Satan have been defeated through the completed work of Christ. The promise of Genesis 3.15 has been fulfilled. It awaits an ultimate fulfillment in one sense when he's finally cast into the abyss and into hell which was created for Satan and the demons, Jesus said in Matthew 25, and then all those who are a part of that kingdom will be with him. But he has been defeated. He is a defeated enemy. John 12, verse 31, Jesus said this, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He will be cast out. He is defeated. He is under the authority of God and he will ultimately be upheld to the justice of God and he will be cast out. Notice that he is currently the ruler of this world. John will call him the God of this world as you're familiar with in his epistle. He is currently enjoying a measure of authority that God has allowed him to accomplish his purposes but he is destined for destruction. He will be Destroyed. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of judgment because of the declaration of the work of Christ, which has defeated the works of Satan. He has defeated sin. He has defeated the fear that comes with sin, the fear of coming judgment, as Hebrew 2 says, because he tasted death for us. It will be a de declaration as well, and he will convict the world as well through the proclamation of the church's ultimate triumph and the kingdom of Satan's ultimate defeat. He will convict the world of these things. He says in John 14, 30, Jesus did, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. That's a tremendous statement of the holiness of Christ. We all have something in us. Right, Namely, still the presence of sin that Satan can tempt, that Satan can exercise a measure of his influence. But with Christ, there was none of that. He was perfectly holy. There was nothing in Christ that Satan 
could use to accuse him or in any way to influence him. He was perfectly holy. But the ultimate declaration of this, this ultimate ultimate convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, is later declared by John in the very last book of the New Testament, namely Revelation. Chapter 6 through 20 is an entire section of Scripture that declares the judgment of the ruler of this world. Ministry, the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so our witness is not left alone, and this is the encouragement. So the Spirit empowers us for witness, and then he takes that witness, and he empowers it to achieve the purposes of God. In some, that will mean that the world is condemned and their sin is held up as grievous because it has rejected the testimony of God concerning Christ. Others will hear that, and that convicting ministry of the Spirit will bring them to personally understand these truths and apply it to themselves and put their faith and their trust in Christ. The point is, is that our ministry of the Word is not left unattended. It comes with the ministry of the Spirit. And briefly, if you flip back over, if you're in John, this is how the promise of Jesus will be accomplished when he says in chapter 14, verse 12, I say to you that he who believes in me, the works I do, he will do also greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Greater works. In what way will we do greater works? In what way will the ministry of the disciples be greater works than what Christ himself had done? He raised the dead. He opened the eyes of the blind. He gave the deaf hearing. He cast out demons. He healed the lame and he caused them to walk. He banished disease and sickness. In what way will they be able to do greater works? What in the world does he mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is this. He's not talking about you're going to do greater displays of power, spiritual power, miraculous power. They did do that. God gave them to the disciples to do the works of the apostles. And so they did do miraculous works of power. They did raise the dead, as Paul did with the the child who fell out of the window. They did cause the lame to walk, as Jesus did. And by doing these things through them, the Spirit affirmed them as God's messengers. And as God's messengers affirmed by the Spirit, the message of Christ was affirmed through them. So they did do that, but these works were not greater than those that Christ did by any measure. So in what way are they greater? They're greater because he says here, I will go to the Father, which we just read, means that when he goes to the Father, he will send the Spirit. When the Spirit comes, the Spirit will, through their witness that he empowers them for, convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And through that convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, greater works will come about. Why? Because people will be saved. The church will be formed. I will build my church. Think about this. The Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. Peter preached, and 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. That's more, as far as we know from Scripture's testimony, than the entire three-year ministry of Christ. The entire three-year ministry of Christ. Now, you add that throughout the ages, the millions and the millions and the millions through the testimony and the witness of the church and the convicting work of the Spirit who have come to Christ. These are greater works. He will tell them later in John chapter 15, I'm sending you, why? So that you will bear much fruit. 
you will bear much fruit. What is the fruit they will bear? He's not talking there about their own personal growth and holiness. He's talking about the fruit of those who through faith, their witness will come to faith in Christ and the church is built. And that will come through their ministry. And that will come because the Spirit enables them to bear witness. And then the Spirit takes that witness and he empowers it to accomplish the works of God, both in judgment and in salvation. So that if you retain the sins of any, they will be retained. And if you forgive the sins of any, they will be forgiven. Based on the response to your proclamation, to your witness. And so... This is then the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So there's much more that could be said, but let me go on. I, only, I want to get through these other two points. Secondly, what is a second new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit then? The Spirit of Christ and believers. And it's this. The Spirit brings us into fellowship with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit in the life of the church brings us into an intimate fellowship with the Father and with the Son. We could even say it this way, that the Spirit brings us into the Son's fellowship with the Father. The Spirit brings us into the Son's own fellowship with the Father. He not only reveals truth, enables his people to bear witness to Christ, but he brings us into the fullness of the blessing which was anticipated from the very beginning, and that is for man to live in fellowship with God. And yet in a way far superior to even that of the garden. And for this, I'd want us to look just briefly We'll look at a few things, but again at John 14. Jesus told his disciples, I will ask the Father. Remember the context here is Jesus has told them, I am going away. Peter said, you know, uh, I'm going to go with you wherever you go. Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me. But then he tells them in verse 14, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm going to go, but I'm going to come back to you. And where I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you in the house of the Father. And then I'm going to come back for you, and I'm going to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You may be with me. And so he's encouraging them. He's saying, and that, that way to the Father is only through me, for I am the way and the truth and the life. And he says, this way to the Father is prepared by me for you, and it's prepared by me who is in the Father, and the Father is in me. Glorious truth. But then he says this in verse 16. I'll ask the Father. And again, the context is of his going away. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. We mentioned that verse briefly last time. The best way to understand that is not that he was with you in the old covenant because of the temple and then he's going to be in you, although th th that is true. But rather to say, he has been with you in me in whom this glorious presence of the Spirit has been revealed like no other time. And the Spirit who has been in me, that you've seen this ministry of the Spirit, but the world has not seen it. They have not seen it. How would the world have known the Spirit of the ministry? They didn't recognize it in Christ. Remember, that's why when they denied him, he says, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. If you speak against this power and you say it's from an evil force, you're not just being ignorant. You are willfully denying the presence of the Spirit in our life and you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. If you blaspheme the Son of God, you can... That can be forgiven, but there is a willfulness, there is a hard-heartedness, there is a given-overness to sin 
and seeing and understanding these works and attributing it to another power other than the Holy Spirit because it is the Spirit who enabled Christ to do the things that he did. And so here he says, and so they didn't perceive him and the world didn't perceive that it was the Holy Spirit in Christ and they didn't understand the testimony the Spirit was bearing to Christ through both the truth and the things that he did. But he's saying now, this Spirit though has abided in, uh, with you, but he will be in you, verse 18, and I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, we'll read to verse 23. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to make our abode in This is tremendous, and obviously more than we're going to consider. I'm going to just look at a few basic points. Now, first of all, this cannot be limited to the resurrection appearances of Christ. It can't be limited to the resurrection appearances of Christ. First of all, because Christ, physically before them, saying that I am in you and the Father is in me would be nonsensical. They're looking at him. Second of all, by him coming with the Father to make their abode in him refers to something other than the physical presence of Christ. Thirdly, it is connected to his promise to spend the spirit of truth, the advocate, the helper, who will be with you forever. The resurrection of Christ was the first instance of this future glory. It was the first instance in which the beginning of this glorious promise was made evident to them because Christ had defeated death, he was alive, and he was going back to the Father, and he would send the promise of the Holy Spirit. But it was not the fullness of it, his resurrection appearances. Even the disciples themselves displayed a lack of power and knowledge that they would have later after the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this promise, though given directly to the disciples, is true as well of the church. The one who demonstrates the reality of a knowledge of God by loving him and obeying his commandments is the one just as true for us as it was for them in whom God will come and make his abode. And so he's not, this cannot be limited to the resurrection appearances. This is the present ministry of the risen Lord Jesus Christ through the Spirit to the church. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Notice he doesn't say we are in the Father. As Paul said, our life is hidden with Christ in God in Colossians chapter 3. He says that you are in me and I am in my Father. It is through our union with Christ that we are brought into this intimate relationship with the Father. You are in me and I in you in the most intimate relationship. That in you language and in Christ language has a variety of nuanced meanings, but here the idea is an intimate relationship and fellowship with you. Intimate relationship and fellowship with you. 
So he promises the Spirit, the Spirit of truth is going to come, and it's going to be received only by those who are in Christ, who have by faith embraced Christ. This coming ministry of the Spirit will communicate the presence of God to believers in a unique and wonderful way. And again, it's the inward nearness of the, of the, the Spirit or the, of the Father and the Son with the disciples through the Spirit. Look at what he says in verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. In other words, it is the display of the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Why? Let me just make a footnote here. Because the Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son with an eternal love. The Father delights in the Son. The Father rejoices in the Son. And the Son in the Father. And so by God's design, He would bring a people into this fellowship with the Son. And then the love that the Father has for the Son is now given to those who are in the Son. It's spread out to the whole church. And we won't go there, but he's going to say that later in chapter 16. The Father himself loves you. Here he says, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. In what way will Christ disclose himself to us? It's simply this, that he will manifest the reality to his own children, his own obedient children, He will manifest to them the reality of his person and his relationship to the Father that we share in. There will be greater and greater understanding and experience of this glory of the relationship that we have with the Father through Christ. I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Now Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus kind of ignores it, not totally, gets and just answers directly and says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Which is showing that the revelation, the disclosing of himself that he's talking about here is an inward disclosure. He's saying it's not to the world because the world can't know about this. The world doesn't have this knowledge of God. You're experiencing something in this fellowship and relationship with God that is unique only to those who are united to me by faith, who share in my life. Why can't the world receive this? They don't know anything about it. When a believer comes to Scripture and they rejoice in the words of God and they hear it as the voice of Christ and the words of their shepherd, when they're strengthened, when they're drawn to worship, when they're convicted of sin, when they're encouraged by grace, when they're made hopeful of the kingdom to come, when they rely on it, when they think on his word, when they love Christ and they pray to him and they confess their sin and we entrust our lives to him and we come to a greater and greater sense of the glory and the knowledge of God, that's something an unbeliever simply cannot understand. They simply can't get it. They can be religious. They can acknowledge a lot of doctrine, but they don't understand that. They don't understand that worship that a believer experiences. They don't understand that glory of Christ that a believer feels within themselves. How are you going to disclose yourself to us in the world? Because to those who love me, to those who are sharing in my life, I will disclose myself to them. And what is the content of this disclosure? It is of his glory, and then he builds on that here. And we will... my. Uh, 
he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our abode in him. This is tremendous language of intimacy, of intimacy. Again, that means as a believer, we share with the son in his own relationship with the father. This is the key blessing of the new covenant, a key blessing. In the Old Testament, God's presence was in the tabernacle and the temple. The people had to come to the temple in order to be near God. That's why they wanted to be in the temple. Again, we mentioned this last week. That's why Psalm 84, the bird who gets to make his nest up in the rafters of the temple, he's blessed. Why? Because he's near to what? He's near to the Holy of Holies. He's near to the Ark of the Covenant. He's near to the bread of presence. He's near to the candelabra of the light. He's near to the priesthood, to the altar, to the sacrifices. He's near to the place where God has uniquely revealed his presence. And so they came, and, they, and the believing Jew loved that. And it was, let me behold, we read it in Psalm 27, the beauty of the Lord. To meditate where? In his temple, in his sanctuary, in his tabernacle. So the Old Testament saint went to the temple to behold the glory of God, to be near to God. But he says something different here. He says, now... Because of my work, because of the resurrection, because of the coming of the Holy Spirit, we, the Father and the Son, note the divine relationship. We, together, because he is the incarnate God, we will come to him and make our abode with him. The movement is of God to his own internally in this abode. So Jesus promises that in the Spirit, he and the Father will come to the believer, even within the believer, and the believer himself or herself then becomes, get this, the temple for the presence of God. And that we're familiar with. We don't grasp that fully. But before where they had to come to the temple, it says, now you don't go to the temple, There's a, that's done. Now that presence of God is in you. It's in you. We are in you. And you individually then become, in that sense, the temple of God. Individually, for example, Paul could say then in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is a temple? It is a sanctuary. It is a dwelling place of God. How? Of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. In other words, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And when you commit sin, in this case, the sin of immorality, you are involving Christ in that. Why? Because God is present in you by the Holy Spirit. And so that would be akin then to bringing a prostitute or some worshiper of Baal or false religion into the temple of area of God and committing the sin there in the presence of God. He's saying that's what you're doing. Why? Because you are the sanctuary of God. You are the temple of God. And that is a temple who is to be holy and is to glorify God. So we are individually, it is applied to, and then corporately. Chapter 2 of Ephesians We've been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, that is through their witness, again, through the, through the witness that they would bear as his particular emissaries, representatives, ambassadors of the truth. And he says, in whom, listen, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, a sanctuary, a dwelling place in the Lord. How? 
in whom you also, you plural there, as the church, the people of God, they're people of God, are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This is what Jesus was anticipating. And we know that dwelling and building ministry and reality of the presence of God as we walk, as we know him in truth, so that is for believers. And what Jesus adds here in John 14 is as we walk with him in obedient faith, the reality of those glories will become more and more real and known to the true believer. That fellowship that we have with God will be more and more known and experienced. Jesus anticipated this with the woman at the well. Remember? Not in Mount Gerizim, not in Jerusalem. There's something different coming, something different that he had said earlier to you. You're coming here for physical water, for refreshment, but I'm gonna give you something greater than that physical water. I'm gonna give you a water, a well of water within you that's gonna spring up to what? Eternal life. You'll never have to come here again making the connection with you will have an inner reality of blessing and joy that you could never know, have known before. And you can have it in me, and it is eternal life. It is eternal life. This intimacy, and I'll just make this as a footnote, is actually shown in two wonderful metaphors of the new covenant. Uh, Well, actually, I shouldn't say that because there's parallels in the old covenant. But there are two particular metaphors. One is that of adoption. That of adoption. In adoption, believers are brought into the family of God. Believers are, in Christ, again, brought in as sons and daughters into the family of God. The family of God, meaning the family of the Godhead, of the Father and the Son, and now we are a part of that. And all of those who belong to God. And adoption is a picture of that. Let me give you just one passage here. In Galatians chapter 4, because you are sons, God has sent forth, well, let me go back to five, uh, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. He's going to say something similar. In Romans chapter 8, he says this, You have not received a spirit of slavery, verse 15, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. What did Jesus pray in the garden? Abba, Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass from me. Here, we are affirmed that we who have the spirit, who are who have the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ in us, as he already said in chapter 8, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God who was the Spirit in Christ is the Spirit in you, and if you have that Spirit demonstrated by a mindset on the Spirit, not the flesh, who's putting to death the deeds of the Spirit, who are led by that Spirit in a righteous life, if that is true of you, then you have the affirmation within yourself of belonging to God as a child through adoption by which you cry out in the intimacy of relationship, Abba, Father. The intimacy of prayer, the intimacy of walking with him. It is the intimacy of a family. The other part, metaphor, that brings out this intimacy that Jesus is speaking of is that of marriage. 
is that of marriage. He says in Ephesians 5 that the husband and wife, repeating out of Genesis chapter 2, are one flesh. They are one flesh. And he says this, and so he, he, he applies this to how husbands should love their wives. But then he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. This is Ephesians 5. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. The mystery of marriage, the union of a husband and wife for life by covenant, experiencing the bond of the covenant in the physical relationship. That is what sets off the marriage relationship from every other relationship. You can have friends, you can have roommates, you can have companions, you can have partners, you can do everything else. What you cannot do is share an intimate sexual physical relationship with anyone else. It's exclusive to the marriage covenant. It is at the heart of what it means to be one flesh. In the sexual relationship, the husband and wife give themselves completely to the other as those with whom they are in a commitment and bond of relationship throughout their earthly existence. It is the most intimate relationship. It is the bond that God has designed within marriage to bind those two people together in the uniqueness of their covenant. So it's what a husband and wife have to share freely in, but only with that person. And here he says... That is actually a picture of the intimacy that we share with Christ. It's a picture of the intimacy that we share with Christ. Marriage, when two, a husband and wife, come together in godliness and in the expression of relationship and in the expression of covenant, are sharing in something of the mystery of our union with Christ. A lot to be said there, but the point I'll make here is that is a picture of the intimacy that we have with Christ. It is a picture of the intimacy that we have with Christ. It is the blessing of having the Holy Spirit's indwelling ministry within us. Let me give this this last one. I'm just going to mention it, and we're going to have to wrap it up. A third ministry of the Holy Spirit in believers is that they're empowered to holiness. They're empowered to holiness. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. That's an amazing statement. Jesus is saying that in my humanity as the perfect God man, in the fullness of my humanity and and human experience, that I maintained and experienced this loving connection and relationship with the father because I obeyed him. Remember that Luke said he grew in wisdom and favor with men and with God. Why? Through his perfect obedient life. And so Jesus himself in the experience of his humanity grew in, experienced, delighted in the love of the Father because of his perfect obedience. And you see the connection. That's what he was just saying. It's the same idea with those who belong to him. As we keep his commandments, he says then we too will experience that love. We too, as we live an obedient life, will experience to greater fullness the love of God for us in Christ because we are share in that same life, in that same relationship. And so it will work the same way with us. I'm having to skip a lot. 
But this is the mark of Jesus' life. Let me just make this point. Let me just give you a few things. Listen to this. Listen to how Jesus described his relationship. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. The Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something that he sees the Father doing. So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as, com- as he commands. I always do all things, or I always do all things that are pleasing to him. That was the life of Jesus. Perfect conformity to the will of the Father. He only did, said, spoke what the Father gave him to do. And by doing that, he said, he proves his love to the Father. Again, that's the same connection Jesus is making with our own life. It's explicit in 1 John chapter 3. As he walked, we also are to walk. As he walked, we also are to walk in this world. Obedience comes from true fellowship with God and so we demonstrate that we have his life in us. And he connects this in 1 John 3, 24 to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Just listen. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him and we know that he, abi- this, that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given. It's not simply a bunch of things that you do to prove that you are saved when you're obedient and loving and putting to death sin and so forth. They are the things that are naturally produced in the life of the believer because of the fellowship. That's why they're called fruits of the Spirit. We don't do those things to enter into relationship. We do them because of the reality of relationship and because of the reality of the Holy Spirit within us. And the crowning jewel of that is that of the Spirit's work in us and a life of holiness is that we also love God's people. We love Christ and we love those who belong to Christ. And with that... I'll just simply mention 1 John chapter 4. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so much to say there. Jesus said in his own prayer to the Father in John 17, it is by that unity and by that love and by that shared fellowship with Christ and with one another. We picture it every other week in the Lord's table that we are a witness to the world of the reality of Christ. As the world looks at the church, as they look at our unity, as they look at the, our shared confession of Christ and our shared life together in Christ, when that's lived out in unity and love, the world looks at that and says, Christ must be real because they proclaim this and I see it in them. Ultimately, that will be manifest at Christ's return. So what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us? We share, here's the summary, we share and we participate in Christ's own life by the Spirit. He demonstrated for us what perfect humanity looks like. He did that for us as our substitute. He fulfilled the righteousness of God for us. One blessing of that ministry of his being the substitute for us is that through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, he received the promise and sent forth the Spirit so that we share in the same life and have the same Spirit that he had during his time on earth. 
That means then that the same spirit that empowered Christ to be our witness to God indwells us. The same spirit that kept Christ in his humanity in the fellowship with the Father is the same spirit who indwells us and brings us into the Son's own fellowship with the Father. The same spirit who does those things is the spirit who empowers us to live with holiness. To live with holiness and to live with love. And remember, holiness isn't about the things that we don't do or do. Holiness is about the things that we love. That's at the heart of holiness. And the Spirit enables us to do that. We don't do any of this perfectly, and that's why in all those evidences of what John gave in 1 John, he also says the one who says there is no sin, he has no sin as a liar, and the truth is not in him, but the one who confesses his sin, the one who confesses his sin He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We walk in grace. We walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We walk rejoicing in what Christ has accomplished to us. And we do this all as a blessing and as a fruit of Christ to work on our behalf and in anticipation of return. Let me pray. And... Father, thank you for this great and glorious truth. Help us to meditate on them and realize them. Help us to realize that we could never approach to you on our own for the one who keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point is guilty of everything. And none can say we have kept the whole law. We're all guilty, but in Christ, according to your promise, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us of all sin. In Christ, we can have the confidence that we will stand before you holy and blameless. In Christ, we can have the assurance that these bodies which are weak and still retain the corruption of sin within us will one day be set free into the freedom of the sons of God. That these bodies which are now destined to die if you do not return first to take us home will be resurrected to live with you without sin, without decay, incorruptible in your presence forever and to be conformed to the body of your glory. Help us to lay hold of these truths, to meditate on them and through that to be conformed to the likeness of our Lord. Even as you said that we who believe these things and meditate on them will be changed in our character into that holy image of God that was evident in Christ. So work those things in us. And if there's anyone here who does not know you, who somehow is resistant still, as we read in Hebrews, to repentance and faith, who is somehow not believing the witness of those who touch and handle the Christ who are not believing the witness of the empty grave, who are not believing the witness of Scripture, who are not believing the witness of the hundreds and the thousands and the millions throughout the ages whose lives have been transformed in, as a evidence of the very promise that you gave of the ministry of the Spirit. May you bring them to repentance today in true faith. And it is to this end that we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.